My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Friends and listeners, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming, coming to you with another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. I'm trying out a bit of a change in my format here. It's been pretty rare on this program that I've spoken directly to you, my listeners. In theater, we often forget that the whole art form is a method of two-way communication, but unlike a conversation, the communication seems fairly one-sided, but there really is a give and take from both parties, the audience and the actors. However, in this audio format, I only get to imagine what your side of the conversation feels like, but that doesn't make it any less important. The point is, I'd like to engage more with you, my listeners, as I get into each episode. Me telling my story to my guest is obviously the bulk of most episodes, but I want to take some time here just for you. And speaking of you, I mean to express some gratitude, as I have a few times in the past. Yes, recently we did hit the milestone of reaching episode 50, which obviously is a big deal. But I don't put out as much content as, as some of my podcasting compatriots. As loyal listeners know, I put out an episode every two weeks. This is episode 52. So if you're doing your math right, this means that this episode effectively means that I have been delivering this content to you consistently for two years now. And the fact that I still have an audience is remarkable to me. And I thank you so much for your continued patronage. As I've been doing... It's been fun for me to see when I get listeners from new locations. So while the past few I have recognized new countries, I'm going to keep it local this time and recognize my upswing in listeners in both Hawaii and Virginia. Both states, funny, being notorious for being only for lovers. I've been to both. And if you'd like to see me again, just let me know. I'll drop my socials later in the podcast and you can contact me there. But for today's episode... I reached out to a wonderful old friend of mine, Micah Wyatt, lawyer, creative writer, and acoustic musician extraordinaire who at one time made music under the moniker The Barefoot Band. And as I'll mention on the interview section in a moment, if you've listened to my show before, then you will have heard his music before as he gave me permission to use one of his songs as the theme song for Euripides Humanities. So, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. This is... Truly one of my funniest episodes I've done, and I say that without hyperbole. Something about it just clicked. Maybe that's why Micah and I have stayed friends for so many years. In any case, here's today's episode, The Tall Tales of Calamity Jane. I want to get right into this episode today. I was inspired to write this episode several weeks ago, and I've been looking so forward to this, and I couldn't think of anybody better than my good old friend. And I say that with utter truth and sincerity because this is a friendship that's going on almost 30 years now. This is my good old friend, Micah Wyatt. Hi, Micah. How are you? Greetings. I am just capital, Aaron. Just capital. <laughs> Perfect. Mike and I have been doing art, art stuff for a long time. We did 
theater and speech and debate in high school. He's been part of many theatrical organizations. He's been parts of troops I've started. We've done plays together. We've done all kinds of shit together. But his Bruce Wayne job during the day, he is a, a lawyer in uh, the town of Lander, Wyoming right now, doing a lot of good work for people out there. In his Batman job in the evenings, he is fighting crime on the good streets of Lander, Wyoming, laying down some great acoustic entertainment. Oh, yeah. Those of you who are longtime listeners of the show are already familiar with Micah's work because Micah has provided the theme song to Euripides Humanities. If you want to look it up, it is under the moniker The Barefoot Band, and the song is Apocalypse Song. Oh, my God. I love that song so much, Micah. I can't. I don't know. I don't know why it just came to me to put that as the theme song to this show but i don't know why you did either you told me a couple times why you thought <laughs> well i think it's it's a lot about how this the the lyrics of the song are like people kind of getting their life in order and things are going the way they expect them to go and then all of a sudden cataclysm <laughs> <laughs> yes exactly it was uh i mean quick two minutes about that it was written at a time in my life when I was like just flat convinced that I was going to meet the person that I was supposed to be with. And then literal bombs would start falling from the sky because the thing <laughs> seemed that, you know, distant, far gone, unable to be reached by me. And uh, also just in sort of a general, like it felt like the apocalypse when I wrote it. You know what I mean? Like the, <laughs> our times felt unsettled. Now, mm -hmm. looking back over a decade, I realized that uh, that that was just kindergarten for unsettled times, right? <laughs> some serious uh, shit right now. <laughs> However, my favorite part about it has a lot to do with the fact that it's this serious, I mean, really actually pretty uh, macabre situation, but the the music is written with such lightness and and, yes. and gaiety, for lack of a better word, man. <laughs> it's old-time jazz tune. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, maybe. I don't know. It was a while after I started this show that I uh, started our mini-sodes, and I need to get back into those again. The theater horror story. When things are just abysmal on stage or in a performance situation and things are going completely off the rails, but my God, I got to make it look like everything is just hunky-dory. Right. So there we go. Maybe it's maybe it was a, a sparkle in my eye. How about that? And then came to fruition. <laughs> I sound like third born, but yeah. <laughs> well, Micah, um, gosh, I, I just uh, I'm so excited to have you on this program. You have been such a fun person to work with. And and one of the people in my life who I just I, I enjoy sharing joy with you, like. <laughs> same my man same it's just uh talking about good times and things that might be somewhat ineffectual but boy oh boy and uh before <laughs> before we started this we were kind of warming up chatting a little bit and we were talking about the idea of of you know it's not really the story that is told but how it's told that can be impactful which i think lends itself really, really well into what we're going to be talking about today. So <laughs> without further ado, oh boy. are you ready to rock? Here we go. Let's do this thing. So as I am wont to do, I will tend to ask my guests a question about the topic that we're going to be talking about. And you don't know what the topic we're going to be talking about, but I did send you a question. And the question was this. What is your favorite story from history that you later found out might not be true? And I did do this homework, man. And you know what the answer is? All of them. All of them. Now, uh, I'm, I'm joking. I got a good one. Okay. But it, but it is true. Because the thing about history is that until you hear even two sides of it, you haven't heard the whole story about history, right? Oh, no. Think about uh -uh. any yeah. day of your life, you're going through it, you're the narrator, you get to tell that story. You even have one other person tell the story of the same day you just live, and you realize how completely wrong you were about what the, you know, what the struggle even was, right? Mm -hmm. So the one I picked in particular was the Roman perpetrated historical crime that there were nothing but barbarians 
to the north of of uh, Italy and 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 you know Roman territories at a certain period of history, right? Ooh, okay, and okay, okay. Me being one of those, you know, me descending from from one of those groups of people, those godless hedonistic barbarians, exactly, right? But so were the Romans. They just uh, happened to pick up on the religion that won eventually, and now is uh, more, you know, fairly prevalent across the world. So, yeah. <clears throat> point being, you know, point being this, you know, uh, there are number one numerous tribes, long histories, perhaps oral, maybe written down, but you don't know any of this because the people that ended up telling the story to the prevalent narrators of our time. Mm-hmm. were Romans, mm-hmm. Roman historians with yep. all of their biases, with all of their inconsistent, incorrect views of the world. Yeah. And, uh, well, you know, they were correct to them. Of course. Right. Right. With respect to the people that they were about to plow the fuck over, they <laughs> <laughs> they had no meaning whatsoever. No. No. And so to me, that's my favorite one, right? Oh, man. And you look at how that has affected not just history itself, but even how like we as Americans tell history mm-hmm. is, is remarkable. It's remarkable. Oh man. I hope I did the assignment. Right. That was great. Um, you know, sitting here talking with you, I'm going to take a sidebar cause this popped into my head today. I was thinking, God, Mike and I have been friends for almost 30 years. And it reminded me of in our teenage years for my birthday, I invited you and a couple other friends to a movie and we went to that movie. And then we went to pizza hut afterwards. And we were just four like theater kids being assholes in a, in a pizza joint. And our, our, oh, yeah. our server a uh, very charming young girl, but had some kind of like unusual name, like star or whisper or something like that. And, and we were like, Oh, this is your name. We're going to be charming theater kids and see if we can uh, charm over the, uh, the, the pizza hut server on her afternoon shift on a Sunday. Because of course. And she was having none of our bullshit, none of it. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if we had so much star or whisper spit in that pizza dough. But you know what? At the end of the day, we did her a solid. The four of us were like, hey, we might be famous actors someday. Let's give her a tip. And so we took a one dollar bill and we all signed it. And you're nodding your head. You remember this. And we put it underneath the water pitcher. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now, to us, that day was hilarious. <laughs> to that poor girl, she... <laughs> yeah, right? You know, I, I found it like a decade ago that I was a real big asshole in high school. <laughs> and some of the things I said on a whim, just on an odd Tuesday, really affected people for a good number of years in their life. Oh, my it's God. It's a strange thing. Hey, speaking, I just redid the assignment. <laughs> In 1953, a charming movie musical was released, Calamity Jane. All right. The feature starred Doris Day in the title role, and in Private Diaries, Doris Day expressed that this was one of her favorite parts she'd ever played. The plot tells the story of a time when legendary character of the Western frontier, Calamity Jane, promised to bring a new singer to a saloon in Deadwood after the main singer in a Deadwood song and dance show caused a riot when the main female performer turned out to be a man in drag. 1953. Jane then travels to Chicago to bring back a famous singer, but mistakenly brings back the singer's assistant named Katie, who also strives to be his famous singer. When Katie takes the stage for the first time in Deadwood, she gets stage fright and almost causes another riot until Jane shoots into the ceiling to calm everyone down. As you do. Mm-hmm. And I like, I, I just... The audience that's represented there in Deadwood is it seems so freaking demanding. Yeah, right. <laughs> Get us a singer. Which kind? This kind brings that kind. No, not that kind. My God, what's wrong with you? Rabble, 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 rabble. 
every Western audience ever. So after the shooting of the ceiling, both women realize that they have romantic intentions for one Lieutenant Gilmartin. For an upcoming town social, Lieutenant Gilmartin chooses Katie over Jane, who is decidedly upset. The women start something of a feud thereafter. At the town social, Jane, who has wowed the entire town with how amazing she looks when she cleans up real good. Naturally. Holy shit, she's out of pants and now in a dress. Anyway, Jane reminds everybody just what her personality is by shooting a punch glass out of Katie's hand, effectively ending the social. Why? I have no idea why that would end things. (laughs) Everybody keep having a good time. I swear, if anyone of you stop drinking, why I'm gonna do something about it. <laughs> yep, typical girls' fight. Anyway, it's okay though, because mm-hmm. just a couple days later, Katie does the same thing to Jane in a saloon. The feud is on. A glass for a glass, an eye for an eye. Nice. Soon after, the other famous Deadwood resident, Wild Bill Hickok declares his love for Calamity Jane, who is reluctant to reciprocate at first. But once Hickok plants a big wet kiss on her, she reconsiders <laughs> and realizes that she's not she's not really into Lieutenant Gil Martin, but is full on into Wild Bill. So therefore, she can reconcile the feud with Katie. Right. All right. I, I didn't know what love was until he kissed me. <laughs> so they can now reconcile, right? Well, that happens, and the movie ends with a glorious double wedding. Isn't that cute? That I'm sure that's exactly how it happened, too. Uh-huh. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, as you're kind of hinting to, uh, I'm no stranger to sarcasm. One of the biggest problems with this story is that while it does take a lot of elements of the Golden Age musicals and adapts them very well to film, the story it tells is incredibly historically inaccurate. <laughs> yeah, right. While Calamity Jane and Wild Bill were in Deadwood at the same time until his unfortunate murder by Jack McCall, the number of sources that proclaimed that the two were romantically intertwined seemed to be either equal or slightly fewer than the sources that suggest they were not even close to each other at all. That's just somebody in a boardroom at a writing uh, writing desk someday going, okay, the big boss really wants a script. What are we going to do? Hey, what if Wild Bill is in love with Calamity Jane? By God, that's a winner right there. (laughs) (laughs) But if we're going to tell a story about Calamity Jane on a theater history podcast, I have to say that the concept of Calamity Jane touches on several somewhat debatable theatrical ideas. And we'll probably get into this once we get the whole idea out here. So how Jane directly fits into theater is that for a number of years, Calamity Jane appeared in a genre that really only survived for about 30 years, but was for a time one of the most popular types of shows in the world. You know what I'm talking about? Not a clue. The Wild West Show. Oh, yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah. Calamity Jane appeared in many of these. Most importantly, arguably the most famous Wild West show ever, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. Definitely. And I absolutely I I got the idea to do a deep dive into Wild West shows, but I just there might be enough there, but there might be enough there that is fairly offensive to talk about. So I watered it down and just condensed it into this one. So For those of you that don't know, I'll briefly describe what a Wild West show was. In the decades after the Civil War, as the Western frontier became more and more organized, what was considered only the hardiest of people would venture out from the East to brave the wilds of the West. Tall tales came back about some of the most prosperous conditions with breathtaking landscapes, but dangerous and hostile living conditions. So it became a balancing game for those interested. Was it worth the danger to live in such splendor and potential wealth? Maybe. I mean, after all, gold and silver were being discovered all over the Rocky Mountains, which had already been inhabited for centuries by Native American tribes who were justifiably ambivalent about a bunch of white people coming on their lands and stealing stuff from the earth, setting up forts and even towns, destroying the rhythms of the wildlife, and just all around being bad neighbors. 
why don't you just go ahead and tell the whole story in 10 seconds? <laughs> sure, silver and gold out there. Massive amounts of people. Well, they're standing on their silver and gold. And this is all after treaties had been signed to say that all those white people weren't supposed to be there in the first place. Oh, absolutely. But then they found gold, so... Well, your common Western guy didn't know that there were any more than maybe two tribes of natives anyways, man. (laughs) It was like, you know, it was the Western expansionist folk versus anybody and anything they found, man. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit difficult to talk about because, like, as I'm thinking about all this stuff, all I'm thinking about is, like, probably some ridiculously bad historical historically written references i'm like of course oh. you played uh oregon trail right that looked like <laughs> the wild west but it nope. felt like the wild west oh my right oh my we can <laughs> we can trade pelts for bullets and everybody's trying to go out and prosper oh my god right? I, one of my former guests uh don brody has a great couple of episodes on the Donner Party she just released within the last month or so. Go find that. Hilf, H-I-L-F, History I'd Like to Fuck. It's a great, great program. Uh, and Don is so funny. But, um, yeah, no, that was gruesome. <laughs> all kinds of shiny. But you have all of these stories coming back about, yeah, we live out rough on the frontier and we sleep out under the stars every night. Sure, there's some dangerous people out there, but it's all worth it when you get to get your own gold claim. Yeah, right. Especially as far as the natives go, you can either make them their, you know, a dedicated sidekick or <laughs> you can just kill them. Fair game. Oh, that's awful. That's so awful. Okay. Well, Regardless, stories of the frontier excited many in the East, particularly those who wanted the adventure feeling of the West, but the relative safety of the East. So, a new form of entertainment was born, the Wild West Show. Bring all that danger here for just a couple hours for the price of a ticket. (laughs) And you can just imagine what this entailed. Just about anything you can think of that would be considered old West entertainment was part of a Wild West show. Here's a short list of like exhibits and and, and stuff that includes, but is not limited to, horse races, sharpshooting, mock gunfights, recreations of stagecoach attacks or daring Pony Express runs, displays of famous figures from the Old West. And this one, God, Micah, Sitting Bull was a feature of Buffalo Bill's show for several years, coming out in full Sioux war garb or medicine man attire. He didn't really do anything but stand there for people to look at him and got paid for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the zoo effect, man. (laughs) No, but I mean, (laughs) just at the end of your life, you're getting there. Like everything has been taken away from you. And you're like, and it was all for money? So if I come out here and I stand here and I wave in my costume, (laughs) you pay me. I get some of that back. Right. Wow. Right. Okay. I mean, can you just imagine Sitting Bull just walking out there? And it's in in front. I'm going to talk about it here in a minute. But it's in front of like thousands of people. And they're all applauding. They're like, wow, look at him. And he's just sitting there smiling and under his breath just going, dude. Dumb white motherfucker. Now's the part where I do this. <laughs> and he slays it every single night. You know that there are a couple of people like, I was here last night. He waved. He waved right at me. He's going, oh my God, he's doing it again. Exactly. <laughs> so one attraction was storytellers who would excite audiences by recounting their exploits in the West. And this is where Calamity Jane comes in. But before I get into that, Let me just discuss the scope of just how big these Wild West shows got, okay? By the time Buffalo Bill Cody got into the game in the 1880s, not only had Wild West shows grown in such popularity that they needed to move out of indoor theaters and into larger markets, it was also the time that larger outdoor shows became more popular. 
And in the East, due to the Industrial Revolution, cities were becoming more and more densely populated. So in order to serve a greater number of people with similar interests all at the same time, grand outdoor shows held in dirt arenas seemed to allow for a perfect merger with Wild West shows in order to encapsulate the entire spectacle of the event. Absolutely. And that's something. Bringing the show to the people there, man. That's right. That's right. And tons of them. Check this out, though. Here's a quote I found. The logistics of the show were formidable. Buffalo Bill's Wild West show in the late 1890s carried as many as 500 cast and staff members, including 25 cowboys, a dozen cowgirls, and 100 Indian men, women, and children. The show generated its own electricity and staffed its own fire department. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's only two things that innovate in human history. That's war and theater, man. <laughs> <laughs> Expenses for this Wild West show were as high as $4,000 per day in 1890. That is $130,993.41 today. Damn. Mm-hmm. Per day. Per day. And like, you have to think tickets back then were like a nickel. Right. So how are we getting this done? There seems to be some uh, discrepancies here between the red and the black. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Buffalo Bill, I know you don't want to talk about it, but your ledger's out of order. You got this thing costing upwards of $4,000 per day. And you charging people a nickel? You better start charging them a rotten dime. These are the toughest words I've ever heard in like an Old West show. <laughs> Silas, you've been accounting for me for nigh on two decades. We never done this before. So a hundred ridiculous amount of dollars a day. So they had to sell a whole buttload of nickels, man. Oh, man. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So that's that, that went so perfect to put them in huge outdoor arenas. Yeah. Now, here's a great quote I found on attendance and statistics, specifically for Buffalo Bills show. In 1899, Buffalo Bills Wild West covered over 11,000 miles in 200 days, giving 341 performances in 132 cities and towns across the United States. Holy moly. In most places, there would be a parade and two two-hour performances. So you get the entire town to see what you've got. Right. And then say, come see what we can do, because we're just marching through town right now. Right. Then the whole show would be struck, loaded, and moved overnight to the next town. Well, you see, this is why they couldn't give Sitting Bull any lines. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you're just out here for show, all right? You just go over there and sit. <laughs> We've got some sharpshooting to do. His name used to be Walking Bull, but then the show started. <laughs> this is the historical inaccuracy right here. That's the story that turns out to be different. He walks out there every day, and ladies and gentlemen, Sitting Bull. And he goes, God damn it, they got my name wrong again. It's Walking Bull! <laughs> it's Walking! <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Just sit down, son. Sit. <laughs> okay. Europeans and their armies were often as fascinated by the ingenuity and efficiency behind the scenes as they were by the show itself. Not many shows could match Buffalo Bills in scale, but all subscribed to similar regimens. And this is what people saw as an exhibition of what life in the frontier was like. The world over, man. Yeah, right, right. I mean, it traveled uh, extensively in Europe. I think I even read that maybe it went to Southeast Asia at some point. I don't know. Possibly so. I certainly yep. believe Africa. Yes. But I believe that's the case, at least Egypt. At least yeah. Egypt. I think it did. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. So where does Calamity Jane fit into all this? <laughs> By 1895, Calamity Jane had already made a name for herself as a wild woman of the frontier necessarily being loyal to any common practices of propriety or decorum. It was said that one could expect Jane to show up in a ball gown or in leathers. The only thing anyone could expect from Calamity Jane was the unexpected. So many of her exploits already behind her, 
Jane posed for some publicity shots in several locations all over the frontier. I think it was one in Deadwood, one in Miles City, Montana, one in like Bozeman. And some of them portrayed her as quite feminine in a large hat and dress, all the while wielding a rifle to show how hardened women may have to become in order to survive in the West while still maintaining their femininity. Right. That's mystique right there. You got to carry a rifle, Gladys. Yeah. Well, and you got to sell this, right? You got to sell this. That's what you're yep. saying. It's, mm-hmm. it's publicity shots. So you got to sell this somehow. Mm-hmm. There's gotta got to be some mystique, some kind of so the dresses versus the rifle. Absolutely. And can you imagine what this is saying to women in the East? They're like, so I have the potential to kill this awful husband of mine. <laughs> we'll go out to the West and I don't know what happened. It's dangerous territory. I'm not sure what happened to him. Why he? I believe he just up and walked off into those hills, <laughs> didn't you, sweetheart? <laughs> now, other shots showed Calamity Jane in her pants, boots, a fringed leather jacket, and ragged hat with a brim, as though a woman could now be considered just as rugged as a man. Right. Now, these shots of Calamity Jane started to be distributed all over the East, and public opinion started to sway her to join a Wild West show to tell her tall tales. To further excite a more metropolitan crowd, Jane had her autobiography published titled Life and Adventures of Calamity Jane by Herself. (laughs) Now, is this uh, like an autobiography that's written by a ghostwriter? (laughs) Or is this like uh, Frank Zappa's autobiography where he went and recorded a bunch of tapes and some other guy transcribed them? (laughs) No, no. This is pretty much her story. A lot of people understood Jane to be basically functionally illiterate. So she probably went to some guy and said, all right, you're going to write down what I'm going to say and it's going to become a book. Which is oddly enough exactly what Frank Zappa said to the guy that wanted to write his biography. (laughs) So she would have short sections of this book published as pamphlets so they could be handed out. So something in the line of Old West clickbait, just inviting readers to get little pieces of the story so they could like collect the whole thing later in her book. Nice. And the people of the East ate it up and began to demand that she appear in Wild West shows so they could see and hear her stories live, which is exactly what she did. This is beautiful. Isn't this great? Yeah. First appearing in dime museums. I think of uh, P.T. Barnum's early shows of human oddities and stories, but with a Western twist. Right. Calamity Jane would be basically an exhibit of living modern history. You know, I mean, oh God, just. Uh, oh, absolutely. I, I think I'm catching your drift here, man. Like uh-huh. the historians are writing history at the same time it's taking place. Right. Right. Like someone's catching wind that all of these wild West stories are going to eventually be extremely historically significant and, uh-huh. or they want them to be. Uh-huh. So we got, yes. yeah. It's like history yeah. right in the making. But of course, as we suggested earlier, there's one major problem with the autobiography. Most historians assume that based on just some of the inaccuracies that Jane claims are fact, the accuracy of the rest of the book is spotty at best. (laughs) (laughs) Why, Jane, you you tricky darling, you. (laughs) Well, Micah, would you uh, would you like to hear about some of the inaccuracies? Yes. Now, some claims are accurate, as best we know. And here's a quote directly from her book. This is exactly how it's written. My maiden name, Marthy Cannery. I was born in Princeton, Mo, May 1, 1852. Father and mother, natives of Ohio, had two brothers and three sisters, I being the oldest of the children. It's no call me Ishmael, but okay. The story from there is that the family moved out west to the Montana Territory when young Martha was only 14, or about 14, her mother dying on the journey out. Okay, there's your Oregon Trail. Here's a quote from another source. 
During the five-month wagon trip, the teenage girl spent most of her time hunting with the men in the caravan. By the time the wagon train arrived in Virginia City, she was considered a remarkably good markswoman and a fearless rider. Okay, so this matches up with the story that most of us kind of might know Calamity Jane. For sure. After the mother passed, Martha's father migrated the family again from Virginia City, Montana to Salt Lake City, Utah, where the father soon died after arriving. So here's poor young Martha, 14 years old. Now she's in charge of five siblings. Good Lord. Once he passed, Martha took her siblings to Fort Bridger in Wyoming in 1868 and took whatever job she could to support her family. Quote, she worked as a cook, a nurse, a dance hall girl, a dishwasher, a waitress, an ox team driver, and according to some tales, a prostitute. All of those, huh? Got to keep the money going. You got five more mouths to feed, you know? You definitely do. Yeah, you definitely do, man. That's what you did. Like, mama died, papa died. You picked right up and start raising them little critters. Yeah. Wasn't that in Total Recall? That guy? Hey, man, I got five kids to feed. And then the next thing he goes... I got four <laughs> kids to feed. And they go, what happened to number five? Yep. <laughs> ah, shit, man. You got me. I ain't even married. I've never seen that, that no, movie in my life. Never. It just picked up. Wow, we did some damn good improv there. All right. Yeah. By 1870, <laughs> okay, by 1870, she joined General George Custer's troop as a scout in Fort Sanders, Wyoming. So she wasn't formally she wasn't okay. formally enlisted. And from what I can tell, a scout is something of like a reconnaissance job. So in a way, and to make myself feel better about where I believe General George Custer's ethics lie, I believe he hired Jane because he felt she was expendable. Dang, okay. <laughs> well, I mean, knowing knowing George General Armstrong, golden hair Custer, mm -hmm. I agree with you. Pretty much everybody was expendable <laughs> with him. Why don't you go out and see if you get shot full of arrows? And if you don't, come back and tell us. <laughs> oh, okay. So it was while in Custer's troop where she started to wear men's clothes as she found some unused soldier's livery and started to wear it while scouting. <laughs> I also think if you're going to be Makes sense. You don't want to be scouting in those full-on dresses, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, okay, that does make sense, because I was just about to say, like, yeah, if you're scouting in dresses, then you got to be hiking up the skirts a bunch and walking over creeks and everything. But I was thinking, like, what if she just dressed like a guy, not as a soldier, because that would be less of a target. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, friends and listeners, this is Aaron taking a moment for you as we're somewhat at the intermission point. Isn't that usually my sign off? I'll see you at intermission. Well, here I am. This story of Calamity Jane gets so much more extraordinary as we get into the aspects of her life that may or may not have been true, but the stories that were told were legendary, as you'll soon come to find out. But before we get there, and while you're listening, feel free to rate this podcast wherever you're listening, or even drop a review that really does help the show grow. And who knows, you might get to be that podcaster hipster and tell everyone that you were listening to Euripides Humanities before it was cool. You can also look up Trident Theater or Euripides Humanities on Instagram. I'll help you out. Both Euripides and Humanities start with the letters E-U. I'm sure you can figure it out from there, but follow me, send me a DM or whatever. And now on with the show. Now, this is the extent to which we can really trust Martha's words regarding her story, and it can be somewhat backed up by general witness. Okay, so let me get into the inaccuracies and I'll start with how she got her nickname. And this, Micah, is going to actually be somewhat very close to our hearts as the story takes place near our hometown of Sheridan, Wyoming. All right. Martha was ordered to help suppress a native uprising at the post at Goose Creek in Sheridan under the command of one Captain Egan. While out on patrol one day, Martha, Captain Egan, and some other soldiers were ambushed by their targets. And here's a quote. Captain Egan was the first to be shot and fell from his horse. Jane was riding in advance, but upon hearing gunfire, she turned in her saddle and saw the captain fall. Galloping back, she lifted him onto her horse and got him to safety back to the fort. Captain Egan, on recovering, laughingly said, 
I name you Calamity Jane, the heroine of the plains. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That one screams a bullshit. <laughs> really? Tell me why. Tell me why. Okay, well, one of the things you didn't mention in your introduction to me is I actually have an MFA in creative writing as well. And they committed one of the classic sins there. Uh-huh. Galloping backwards, she grabs his ass. He suddenly recovers. Like, you can't gallop backwards and grab his ass at the same time. <laughs> right? It's just not possible. Which means it's a fucking lie. <laughs> I also think of just the turn of phrase there of, she turned in her saddle. And anybody who's ever ridden a horse before knows that's pretty difficult. Pretty difficult, man. Pretty I think difficult. it was in a Zorro movie where I saw Zorro riding on a horse and he jumps off. It's a really cool trick, and I've seen it in live shows before. He jumps off, bounces on the ground, does like a freaking flip, and then lands backwards on the saddle. That's... <laughs> but right. They, but look, if you're galloping, the horse is bouncing quite a damn bit. <laughs> it's hard to just go, all right, on one two three and you're backwards anyway right man <laughs> not to mention i mean that stuff happens so quickly with you know uh, such out of the nowhere uh that you don't have time to react you don't have time to look backwards and see your general getting uh -huh. shot yeah and you're just riding and getting your dumb ass out of there she should have been called riding and getting her dumb ass out of there jane <laughs> by that logic oh so again as we're suggesting well there are technically only two people who could corroborate that story nonetheless a legend had been born and little martha cannery from missouri was now forevermore known as calamity jane well i'll tell you something too i just thought of and this is maybe just completely out of the blue and certainly is a bit uh presumptuous of myself but Given the work, don't you think that maybe Calamity Jane is a name she picked up as a prostitute rather than as a scout? Oh. <laughs> and there's some boy out there who may have bought her services one night and then sees her in a picture and he goes, hell, I know her. At any rate, let us continue. <laughs> yes. So, <clears throat> For the next inaccuracy, I'm going to just give a short laundry list because, uh, as you stated, uh, it seems as though you have a pretty good bullshit detector. And each one of these might have a reason to go, yep, bullshit. And we don't need to point every single one of them out is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could just say them and go, uh, okay. I'm going to get to how she got to the mining camp of Deadwood soon. And for fans of the HBO series and the movie, uh, this is how I came up with the idea is I watched that and I went, God, she's freaking great. And I looked her up and it said, she was at Buffalo Bill's show. I'm like, that's theater. Woo. I can do an episode on Calamity Jane. But fans of that show and the movie know that Calamity Jane is one of the primary characters of the show. And they also know her to be quite crass with her language, pretty rough with her mannerisms and quite the heavy drinker. I bring that up so I can tell something of a far-fetched tale from her time in Deadwood that I found. Here's a whole quote. One morning in the spring of 1877, when she was riding towards Crook City, she met a stagecoach running from Cheyenne to Deadwood with Indians in hot pursuit. Pulling alongside, she found the driver lying face downwards in the boot of the stage, having been shot with an arrow. Taking the driver's seat, she drove the coach to Deadwood, carrying its six passengers and the wounded driver. End quote. Mm. Buying it? No, no. Actually, I stopped listening halfway through that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a point where you're like, I'm out. This is also why I'm single, Aaron. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You were saying something was important to you? Gets to a certain point, they just go click. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. So. While that is quite the heroic tale, most historians question the logistics of how Jane was able to transfer herself from her horse to her wagon, how she single-handedly was able to escape a band of pursuant Sioux completely unscathed. Still, great story. Absolutely. Not to mention, I mean, that's the basis for some of, some of like our most iconic Western-type oh. film anyways, right? Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. This, you know, the stagecoach rescue, all of this stuff. Like you're starting to see these, the birth of these interesting tropes, fascinating yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there are people who can do like absolutely zero wrong. They're, they're, they're perfect at what they do. Precisely. You don't see Clint Eastwood hear his, his spurs, ching, ching, swing the bar doors open and then trip over the door jam. Nope. Excuse me. A tripped. I'm looking for one-eyed Pete. (laughs) (laughs) These goddamn new boots shit. And there are so many tales that I could bring up about Jane's life story that are unfortunate at best in trying to establish her credibility, but here are a few. Jane reported in print that she was in Custer's troop at another fort in Wyoming. The two were at the same fort, but not at the same time. Rather literally years apart from each other. No kidding. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So again, she's the one telling these stories. Yeah. So she had to make that lie up, huh? hmm Dang. Because mm-hmm. it's not like fact checkers didn't exist back then, right? Yeah. Yeah. It no. just wasn't instantaneous. It would have taken 25 years, but... <laughs> right. And as part of the same tale, Jane reported that she was with Custer's troop at this fort to suppress a native uprising, which she claimed happened in 1872, but it actually happened in 1877. Oh, sure. But that's just the drinking, man. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you said it was 1877. Oh, fuck you. Give me some more sour mash. I'm actually scared in this speech. <laughs> I was with Custer. Oh, God. The woman who plays her in Deadwood is so phenomenal. Like, it's it sounds like her entire upper lip got stung to complete death by bees. And so just everything, everything is coming out. You son of a bitch. Oh, God, it's just great. Anyway, here's another story. Jane was dispatched to drive a wagon with supplies from Cheyenne to Fort Laramie once, but she got so drunk she missed her location and was 90 miles away from it before she realized it. (laughs) No, because you don't keep getting jobs if you do shit like that. (laughs) (laughs) She brings it back. Where the hell were you? Ah, shut up. I'm ready to go again. (laughs) Oh, okay. Here's one more. The last on our laundry list. Jane had at least one daughter, and her stories of who the father were varied from all sorts of men, including a Texas land baron who she apparently married. There were even claims that the child was the daughter of Wild Bill Hickok, as they were suggested to have been romantically involved. We kind of suggested that earlier, but there's very little evidence to support that, other than they arrived in Deadwood together on the same wagon train. Right, right, right. All right. But here's, oh my God. The story that I have the hardest time with is just a very passing story that is only one line in Jane's autobiography, and it concerns probably the most famous incident that occurred in Deadwood, Wild Bill Hickok being murdered by Jack McCall. Okay, and if anybody has ever been there, this is only like uh, three hours from our hometown in in the Black Hills, but it's a a, a fun little uh, gambling town now. Uh, not much to do for the kids, but you know, if you want to get away as an adult for a weekend in a quiet little mountain town and get some pretty decent food and have some fun at card tables, uh, you could do a lot worse. But here's how it went in Jane's story: when Jack McCall murdered Bill Hickok in a Deadwood saloon after losing at cards. Jane says the events played out this way, quote, from her autobiography, I had grabbed a meat cleaver and made him throw up his hands, end quote. What? (laughs) Basically, with this one phrase in her book, Jane claimed to stop McCall dead in his tracks so he could be taken into custody, which could not be further from the truth, more or less based on a plethora of well-recorded history and witnessing. Right. But let us not stop that from it being a good autobiography, Aaron. But here's the real tea, and I'ma spill it. After a few more missions with General Custer's troop, Calamity Jane caught an illness and was hospitalized at Fort Fetterman near the current town of Douglas, Wyoming. This was spring 1876. 
After rehabilitating, she headed south to Fort Laramie, where she first met Wild Bill Hickok. And the story goes that the evening she arrived, both Wild Bill and Calamity Jane were notorious for being heavy drinkers, and they drank and laughed the night away until the sun come up. Mm -hmm. By then, Jane had procured a space in Hickok's wagon party, headed for Deadwood, where they arrived in June 1876. And during that summer, Jane became a writer for the Pony Express, so people knew this. And it was for the route between Deadwood and the city of Custer, a route which was touted as one of the most dangerous on the frontier. So the fact that she survived that is like it's a testament to, OK, so she's at least crafty in the wilds and, and knows her way around this place somewhat. OK, for sure. Upon arriving in Deadwood, while Bill Hickok established himself as a card player, and when he wasn't trying to set up his business there, he would be playing cards often. After his long career in law enforcement, Hickok was always known to keep a seat that faced the front door of whatever establishment he was in so he could be alerted to the entrance of any threat. Okay? Old lawman. Get it. On August 1st, 1876, Hickok was playing at a table in, and I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, Nuttall, N-U-T-A-L-L, Nuttall and Man's 66 Saloon with Jack McCall, who could be best described as dim-witted and drunk. <laughs> That's pretty much what everybody said about him. There. Yeah. McCall had come to Deadwood after traveling from Missouri to hunt buffalo, but now was something of a laborer looking for the occasional odd job. When he lost big time to Mr. Hickok on August 1st, it was well witnessed that he left the saloon that night with a raised temper. <laughs> That's a very kind way of saying it. Yeah. So on the next night... It can only be speculated as to why Wild Bill Hickok took a seat in the same saloon at the same table, but sat with his back facing the door. Nobody really knows why. He could have waited for a seat to open up, but apparently he wanted to play cards. The night of August 2nd, Jack McCall marched into the establishment, shouted, Damn you! And shot Bill Hickok in the back of the head with a 45 caliber revolver. Hickok was dead before he hit the floor. Calamity Jane was not in the establishment at all. McCall ran out into the street, stole a horse and tried to escape, but probably due to inebriation, fell from the horse before he could get out of the camp. He was found in an alley behind a butcher shop and taken into custody. The next day, a trial was held, but since Deadwood was not yet recognized as a community by the federal government, there could be no actual criminal charges, so if a verdict was rendered, it couldn't be carried out legally anyway. Does that sound about right? It absolutely does. Gold was discovered there before, before any structures of law even came here. Right, right. Really remarkable history. Really remarkable point of history. Yeah, yeah. Regardless... The trial still went, and McCall claimed that the murder was an act of vengeance, as Wild Bill had killed McCall's brother in Abilene, Kansas, years ago in his duty as a lawman. The jury deliberation was short, and McCall was acquitted. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Why'd you kill him? Well, he killed my brother years ago. Well, sounds about right. <laughs> oh, sorry i talked over you man it's actually been reenacted as florida's new stand your ground law <laughs> if you've been threatened by this person or any member of your family has in the past 25 years just go ahead and fucking kill them an editorial in the deadwood newspaper the black hills pioneer had this to say about the verdict quote should it ever be our misfortune to kill a man we would simply ask that our trial take place in some of the mining camps of these hills. <laughs> <laughs> Upon acquittal, McCall left for Wyoming, where he was recognized and subsequently arrested for the murder of Wild Bill Hickok, as where he was found was actually recognized by the federal government. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> so he was sent to Yankton, South Dakota, where the nearest federal court resided. A new trial began determining that the double jeopardy law did not actually apply here as Deadwood was not an established community. So the acquittal was not respected. Right. Yep. Right. McCall was found guilty, was executed by hanging and was buried in Yankton. Several years later, when the cemetery in which McCall was buried had to be removed and the bodies exhumed, it is said that McCall's body still had the noose around the neck. 
Now I don't know which of these stories are true or complete. <laughs> the Old West is a complete and ridiculous set of just amalgamations of the two. Truth and fiction. Truth and fiction. Which I'm sure that's what we're talking about in the Old West shows. You know, there is a play, Laughter on the 23rd Floor, that is about the years in which Neil Simon and several other really famous comedic writers were writing for, like, a particular TV show or something like that. And it just makes me think, like, these people came up with the funniest things, and they were the funniest people, but, I mean, their job was damned serious, you know? <laughs> like, And it was all work. And, and uh, they had to have pitched ideas across each other. I can just imagine there is like some room in the middle of Kansas somewhere where they're like, all right, who's got anything on South Dakota? Do we have anything on South Dakota? Well, there's a lady up there who causes a lot of problems. And uh, and uh, she said she might have uh, been there to have that guy arrested. Yeah. OK, we'll let her tell that story. That's fine. That's fine. Um, um, hey, 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 what about us? What about a superhero? No, 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 no. That's going too far. That's going too far. We really can. Uh, let's let's bring it back. Bring it back. All right. Regroup. <laughs> No, we can put a mask on him, and he's got an uh, an Indian man that rides along with him. Well, maybe we'll save that for a later show. Save that one for later. <laughs> we'll just tuck it away. Oh, God. Okay, coming to the end here. This is great. There are stories that Calamity Jane did assist with a smallpox epidemic in Deadwood until inoculation could be obtained. And here's a great quote I found about her time healing the afflicted, because I, people saw it. They said she helped out. So I believe this one. This is great. Quote, while tending to the children, the doctor said of her, oh, she'd swear to beat hell at them, but it was a tender kind of cussing. Sounds like my grandma. <laughs> no, grandma. <laughs> Let's smack each on your way out the door. That's just so you remember your bastard. <laughs> <laughs> and I love you, you little shit. Oh. So, getting back to Jane in the Wild West shows, all of these stories only increased her intrigue to the crowd more and more. She was famous, despite the fact that maybe only a handful of her stories were actually true. Quick question. Yeah. Do these folks know they're true or not true? Like, are these controversies coming up at the time? No. I don't think they are, because if they were, I don't think these shows would have been attended as well as they were. I agree with you. And isn't that interesting? Because mm -hmm. now we live in a time where it doesn't matter if it's a truth or a lie, because mm -hmm. all publicity is good, right? You had to have good publicity back then, man. Yes, yes. Because like I said, those fact checkers existed. Why you couldn't have done that? You was in Dodge City during that year. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh -huh. But yep. they didn't come on till much, much later. I think they were called historians because they actually looked shit up and said, <laughs> sure, you got a story about the Wild West? Get on out there and tell it, Missy. I'll be good. Boy, you spin that yarn really good, despite you don't know what the hell you're doing with a gun. <laughs> but as far as the Wild West shows are concerned, Calamity Jane also performed horse riding tricks and took part in some sharpshooting. So to that point, if she could shoot a hole through the ace in an ace of spades from 80 yards away. Well, by God, she probably did help those people in that stagecoach when the driver got shot and all the Indians were around and the other six people in the cart didn't know what to do. Naturally. Naturally. Because these crowds don't know shit from Shinola, man. <laughs> Bam, but did you see that? Right through the center of the ace of spades. However... The rumor goes that only a year or so after, well, uh, maybe a few years with Buffalo's Wild West show, Jane got really drunk one night and was kicked out of the show permanently, which happened with at least two more Wild West shows. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this lady just, <laughs> I ain't going on tonight. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let's have a little kid out of the outburst. There's sitting bowl over there just sitting, watching it all happen. <laughs> oh, okay. Let's bring it to a close. Here we go. Calamity Jane died on August 1st, 1903 in a small room in the Callaway Hotel in Terry, South Dakota. Her dying wish to be buried next to Wild Bill. But as I said, 
the records about their relationship are spotty as well. While some would infer that the two were at one time lovers, Jane only referenced that a few times when she claimed that Wild Bill was the father of her daughter. However, some sources claim that once Wild Bill was in Deadwood, he didn't really have much feeling for her one way or the other. In fact, some reports state she actually was really annoying to him. But whether it was out of respect or as a prank at the expense of the memory of Wild Bill, Calamity Jane was buried next to the gravesite of Wild Bill Hickok. You know what this is? This is the Wild West version of Rose and Vincent Guildenstern, my friend. <laughs> Calamity Jane's just nothing more than the modern, well, the then modern day Rose and Guildenstern. <laughs> She's got this whole behind the scenes up front. You see Wild Bill not giving a shit about her, of course, but then they're buried in the end. Uh, Micah, that's that's the story of the tall tales of Calamity Jane. This is beautiful. Man, what a great story. Oh, my God. Yeah, it really is. And as I said, as it ties to theatrical concepts, I actually listened to a, a podcast earlier this year that really deeply criticized the musical Hamilton. And I can understand why. I mean, yeah, to a lot of historians, very historically inaccurate. But the last line, the last line of the show is, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. As though to say, history cannot be firm because there are so many different perspectives of what the truth actually might be. Just the fact that, like you, you picked up, picked up on it really well. It's like it was no, there was no bad publicity. They could say whatever they wanted to, and I, I would imagine that a lot of the criticisms of this probably were easily squashed by, I don't know, uh, fighting in a duel <laughs> or threatening somebody to shoot them for reals, man. Or are they? I mean, they probably hired people to go to the streets and listen for people calling BS. Uh-huh. And then those people would either fight the BS callers, or they'd just say, "You know what? This guy don't know what he's talking about. What a dipshit!" And everyone else would be like, "Yeah, what a dipshit!" And that was the end of that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're like, "Let's hear that story again." Yeah, we lived by the truth that could be forced, man. Mm-hmm. And. I will bet you money the people that are selling Calamity Jane have got those had those people out there to make oh, yeah. sure that that story stayed true in everyone's mind because you couldn't have that word getting around, right? Right, right. Or, you know, I'm thinking of the flip side of that coin where they all just went, I know this is full of shit, but let's have her tell the story again because she is such a fucking character and it's so interesting to listen to this idiot talk. Yeah, tell us that one about uh, uh, about uh, uh, throwing hands and Jack McCall again. Yeah, I know it's full of shit, but listen to how she tells it. Right, and she's still charming. Me. Yep, because you like that character, and I love that character in Deadwood too. Yeah, right. It didn't matter what that character said. It didn't matter to me what her arc actually was. I just like to listen to her talk. Yeah, yeah. And and to see the decision she made, like there were times when you're like, okay, you got so drunk that you need a building to hold you up. So you're going to sit there with your head knocked into the building just so you can actually be upright for this hour. Right. But then, then there are times where she's healing the wounded and, you know, helping people with, afflicted with seizures and, and, uh, and cussing at them all the time. It's like, here, butt down on this fucking stick. <laughs> But you're like, yeah, yeah, you bite down on that fucking stick. She's trying to help you. <laughs> I'd have, I'd have bit down on the stick, Aaron. No lie, I would have bit <laughs> down on the stick. Uh, you got it. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I, I kind of want to get into this on uh, on a, an episode someday about the big question in acting of are we lying to the audience? Mm. And the, in my opinion, the answer is always yes. But they're asking you to lie to them. Fair. Yeah. You know, who was that? Jean-Paul Sartre, who had that uh, play about the masks that everybody wore mm-hmm. and everybody gets, you know, gets together, wears somebody else's mask in the village for a day or what have you. And they just mm-hmm. become that person. Yep. Right. Everything. Yeah. Then from that respect, everything is a lie. Yeah. Yeah. But we are agreeing 
of how it afflicts us, I guess, or we are agreeing on how it helps us examine a perspective of the world. Mm-hmm. I don't care that you're being dishonest with me, air quotes dishonest. No, you're not really this person on stage doing these things, but you are really a person on stage doing these things. And it is helping me understand the world a little bit better. Right. Well, I don't know that Calamity Jane helped people understand the world a little bit better, but God damn it, there were some fun stories. They were. I think she helps us understand ourselves. There we go. There we go. I like that. So now when I see her in the yeah. Sheridan Wild Rodeo Parade and people are going, there is that great old figure from the West, I don't have to just go, yeah, but she's full of shit. <laughs> right? That's the point. <laughs> I mean, think about this, too. What if she was so good at her bullshit that she fell in love with uh, with Wild Bill mm. as a result? of all the bullshit that she spread, right? Ooh. She wanted that so much that, she, that it brought it right back around. And that's why she's buried next to him. That's oh. why you can sit there in that parade and be okay about her, man. Yeah. There we go. There we go. Micah, thanks for going on this deep dive with me. Holy moly. My pleasure. This is a lot of fun, Aaron. See, didn't I tell you it was going to be legendary? <laughs> I have to take a moment to thank my friend Micah Wyatt for his contribution to the show. And if you'd like to listen to more of his music, I have a link to his music in the show notes. Or you can find a link on Trident Theater's website, simply tridenttheater.com. But remember that I spell theater with a T-R-E at the end. In any case, I want to thank you for getting through another episode and rounding out two years of Euripides Humanities. As I've said before, I'm going to keep bringing new stuff to you, but for now, I'm going to sign off. This has been Aaron Odin from Trident Theater in Sheridan, Wyoming. I'll get another episode out to you in another two weeks, and I will see you at intermission. Avant.